Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Paideia Today. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and I am joined here by my colleague, Dr. Scott Masson. And today we're going to be talking about a different text. We're going to be talking about the Odyssey and many details therein. Uh, and I'm going to begin with a reading from book one, the beginning of book one, the invocation of the muses, or the muse, one in particular here. Tell me, muse, of the man of many ways, who was driven far journeys after he sacked Troy, sacred citadel. Many were those whose cities he saw, whose minds he learned of. Many the pains he suffered in his spirit on the wide seas, struggling for his own life and homecoming of his companions. Even so, he could not save his companions, hard though he strove. They were destroyed by their own wild recklessness, the fools who devoured the oxen of Helios the sun god, and he took away the day of their homecoming. From some point here, goddess, daughter of Zeus, speak and begin our story. So one of the first things we notice here, uh, as is typical with the epic, is an invocation of the muses. And this, uh, it has this in parallel with the Iliad. Dr. Masson, say more on these fronts here, because there are a great number of parallels, in fact, stylistic details that link the Iliad with the Odyssey. Well, this is certainly one of them, the invocation of the muse. So this is telling a story that um, is not just a story. It seems to have have a, a sacred element to it and uh, it's something beyond the capacity of a mortal poet to tell that seems to be an aspect of it although it's to be fair the muses are invoked for for a wide variety of arts and so there's a recognition uh, even in the telling of history or in uh, or, or any number of um, narrative or uh, poetic types of the need for divine help to tell the story well and suitably. But it's certainly a feature of the, of the epic that uh, Muse is invoked at the outset for uh, inspiration. So that's a commonality between the Iliad and the Odyssey. We can see something else that emerges here, which is not so much the case in uh, the Iliad, but is the case here in the Odyssey. And it's something that Horace notes to be typical of the epic. He might be commenting on the Odyssey, but he's certainly commenting, commenting on the Aeneid by his contemporary Virgil. It begins in medias race, in the middle of things. Where we're gonna see that the structure of the Odyssey is such that it, it begins with the, the main figure, uh, Odysseus being, we don't even hear about him. So note that in the Iliad, we hear of the rage of the Achilles in the first line in the passage you just read. We don't even hear of Odysseus, who's the main hero, until 20-odd lines down. And even then, it's rather elliptically. And then there's a lot of backtracking. So it begins with background before it moves forward. So that, that becomes a feature of the epic thereafter, this sort of uh, uh, giving a bit of a background before then launching forward. And uh, so that's one of the features. Then we have the Council of the Gods, which we saw in the Iliad as well. Uh, the gods are um, troubled with a problem. Uh, uh, in the case of the Iliad, it's the problem of the, the treatment of um, Achilles and Agamemnon and the problem of the war there. Uh, in this case, it's the treatment of Agamemnon uh, by the hand of his wife, Clytemnestra, and Aegisthus, who they slay him, um, mm. in other words. And now... We have a parallel situation where Odysseus is not yet home, but he's going to come home. And uh, what's going to happen to him? Will what happened to Agamemnon also happen to Odysseus? Well, it could be the case because 
Penelope is surrounded by suitors who are trying to win her hand and overtake the kingdom. And That's so the right. threat to Odysseus, there's a, there's a parallel being drawn there. And the gods are very alarmed about the prospect of what might happen to Odysseus on the basis of what did happen to Agamemnon. So that's yeah. there. Yeah, the, the uh, irony here to me, it seems, is that, you know, Agamemnon and uh, Odysseus, along with all the others, left the, the comparatively or conceptually safe domestic space, and they went out to war, to conflict, and to face death, uh, which many of them encountered, of course. And the irony, or ironia, as the Greeks might say here, uh, is that the homecoming back to the safe place now threatens to be as deadly and dangerous as the battlefields out to which they journeyed in the first place. And this, of course, distresses the gods enormously. How do we actually recover the sanity or the, the sanus, the health uh, of that domestic space? Because Agamemnon's domestic space and the entire kingdom that depends upon that stability and structure uh, has been overturned. It's been destroyed. Yeah, that's interesting. Because when you think of war, you do think of uh, a place of chaos. And certainly it is a place of, of chaos on multiple fronts. The theater of war, the, the moral chaos, the other forms of chaos. Yeah. There no, seems to be no good and evil. It's a very, the, the fog of war is everywhere. Yeah. But as you've just noted, in the Odyssey, we begin with the same problem. That, so in their absence, these heroes, whether it's Odysseus or Agamemnon or uh, whoever, when they leave, the, the disorder breaks out behind them as well so yeah. because there's no longer a king on the throne. And so things t uh, lean towards anarchy. And that's mm -hmm. how the Odyssey begins. His, his kingdom is in disarray. As we trace through uh, many other texts coming later in Western literature here, we're going to see them take this notion of chaos and danger um, slowly and quietly and insidiously invading the home space, the safe space. Uh, we're going to see it certainly when we come to uh, Old English literature uh, and the realm of Beowulf. We'll see yeah. it again in the literature of uh, the High Middle Ages, particularly Arthurian literature. Yes. Arthur and his knights of the Round Table will go out on these dangerous quests. They will face the chaos and the darkness. Uh, meanwhile, back uh, at Camelot, there's trouble and the greatest danger ends up coming from your safe base. As There's it no safe space. You know, in other words, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just when you thought everything was secure um, and you, you turned your back, there the it breaks out. Yeah. raises itself up. And so that's exactly what uh, Odysseus is uh, facing here. This is the danger. And he needs the wisest, most strategic of the gods, Athena, to help him through it. And that's, again, that's a judgment on the Greeks' part. That is Athena specifically who will be the patron uh, of the client Odysseus uh, in, in facing a dangerous, ironic quest. And the corruption of the of the the home space, the hearth. I know we're going to talk about heroism in a minute, but his heroism will have to differ from that of uh, Achilles, where Achilles basically could face his foes straight on and yes. just basically, <clears throat> through sheer force of uh, of martial prowess and will, all his enemies down. Yeah. But Achilles, that's not an option for Odysseus. He he needs a different means of addressing that. But let, let me um, carry on with some of the um, features of the epic, which emerge here in the Odyssey, and in some ways I think become um, more normative than they are in the Iliad. The Iliad is the greatest of the two epics, or the greater of the two, and arguably the greatest of all works, and I happen to share that view. Um, if it is first, then this is the second because this is a great work and more influential on the on the subsequent ones like the Aeneid and Homer's uh, or rather Milton's Paradise Lost and so forth it has this encyclopedic quality 
Mm. And uh, it's, it's well known that, that Homer was regarded as the teacher of all Hellas, by which was meant the Greek polis, the polises, the city-states. And all would look to Homer for um, their etiquette manual, for their ethical manual, for their model of rhetoric, for their understanding of how to do things rightly, for their understanding of hospitality, how to regard the gods, how to regard the stranger, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so that, that encyclopedic quality, so it's, it's a wide ranging uh, quality is related to this notion of paideia, uh, and that's education in, in the broadest sense. Yes. It gives you more than just hard technical de- details. You know, if you look at overviews of the Odyssey, you'll see some people uh, treat uh, the geography of, of the Odyssey and others will treat the history of the Odyssey and what have you. And it has those things in it, to be sure. But it's already adopting at a much more subtle and eloquent and civilized level this notion that a true education doesn't just teach you what to think. It doesn't give you just the hard things. It it gives you instead, from what we would now call a liberal arts perspective, uh, as Roger Scruton, the modern philosopher, says, it teaches you what to think towards what object, in what way, at what time, and to what degree. How do you feel about these topics, whether it be heroism or authenticity yes. or whatever it is? That's it. So it's teaching the emotions which guide the reasoning mind, and, and it disciplines the, those emotions, the passions, I suppose they would call them, not the emotions. Um, and if you think of the encyclopedic nature of the Odyssey and the Iliad from that perspective, you can immediately start seeing the huge dividends it had to offer, and you can understand why the Greeks thought the way they thought, felt the way they felt did the things that they did if you're using these two texts as kind of a roadmap to their thinking it's it's invaluable in that sense yeah and so and so the aim isn't uh the so paideia then is not just passing on of information and it's certainly not just the modern technocratic the means of delivering it it's it's really the aim is mastery how do you become a master of your domain whatever that domain is and and odysseus is to some degree the best representation of that. So he's he's polymerites, he's many-minded Achilles. Yes. He's the master of many ways, many arts. So he's the master of arts, if you will. He doesn't just think certain things. He he thinks about those things from many different perspectives. From it's, it's like he's got multiple personality disorder at times, but he uses it to his advantage. Uh, and this is a thing the Greeks are admiring. They're not they're, they're they're not condemning this. They're admiring this. They're trying to cultivate this. Can you see it from multiple multiple perspectives? So I, I think that's a very interesting feature. So he's a, he's a he's what would in later narrative would call a complex figure. He's very yes. complicated. He's not he's not clear or straightforward and and endlessly fascinating as such. Yes. The other thing he does here, which we don't see in the Iliad, but which becomes really important for epic uh, and the epic convention and understanding of the encyclopedic nature of the epic, is that he descends to the underworld. Yes. And. Right. And in the underworld, so we've in the Iliad, we've been told about the gods and their domain and what they're like and uh, what the theater of war is like. But we haven't really found out what's what that that third place that the ancient world recognized the underworld. What's that what that is like? And, And Odysseus goes down to the underworld. And that's part of his heroism, of course, that he yeah. is able to not just go down there because everyone goes down there, but to rise up again. So that becomes a feature of the epic. That is one of the features that emerges here, and it will become an epic convention thereafter. It's uh, uh, and then 
it, the, the realm of the dead is, as we've discussed before, it's the realm of, of course, enormous danger and strangeness, the uncanny and the weird, but it's also the realm of wisdom. And yes. in many mythologies, um, when it comes to wisdom, and specifically wisdom of a divine, transcendent, spiritual nature, uh, you have to converse with the dead, which oftentimes means going to them. And so the quest motif uh, overlies this notion of the quest for wisdom, uh, the wisdom of the dead specifically. And of course, Virgil makes, makes great hay with this, uh, as does yeah. Dante. And, uh, yeah. The other feature is this is a dactylic hexameter, just like the Iliad, and has the same epic similes. And so but th those, are, those are common features. But the descent in the underworld is new. And uh, uh, I think beginning in Medias race uh, is new. And the Paideia, that, I think that's there in the Iliad, arguably, as well. But this, this really fills it out because that's the theater of war. And now we're removing to, a, to the theater of civilization. And so that the two together give a fulsome picture of, of the entirety of human life. Just to backtrack for a moment back to the notion of Paideia, you see Achilles at certain points. He's, Achilles is a man of tremendous integrity. It's one of the, the core aspects of his heroism. And thus he condemns uh, Odysseus, as we'll talk about presently here, uh, for saying one thing and holding another in his heart. Yeah, I think and, that's so important. Yeah, it is. And this, again, it, it speaks to this notion of educating the character of the reader. It's not to say that these texts are uh, didactic. I don't think they are didactic in, in the proper modern sense, not at all. Not in that sense, no. Nevertheless, they are meant to cultivate, and I use that word very deliberately and strategically, uh, a certain aspect of character. So you might think of it like this, it, uh, or the Odyssey doesn't teach you merely what to think or what to say or what to do. It's, those are tools in your toolbox, uh, intellectual tools, and everybody builds those intellectual tools up as time goes by. But this educates the character that wields the tool. It's a very, very dangerous thing, as we'll see in a number of works of literature, to give a reader, a thinker, a, a, a powerful, replete toolbox without educating his or her character, which wields the tools. Because yes. then what you've done is you've given tremendously powerful uh, weapons. Yeah. Somebody whose character will take them in dark directions. So you yes. don't want to do that. So you have to start foundationally by educating character and then to build the tools in on top of that. Obviously a character with no tools, intellectual tools, cultural tools, uh, can't do much of anything. Yeah. But you start with the character. And again, as we get to Roman writers and then when we get to Christian writers, we're, we're going to see them really focus in on this sequence of educating within the tradition of the liberal arts. It's, but it's already here in the Greeks, which is one of my points. I think modern jargon, so it's not prescriptive teaching, it's more attractional. It's something, yes. it's, it's, it's uh, presented in a way which we want to emulate yes. or, or avoid if, if it's presented as a repugnant thing. And so we, we not only see or just hear it described as as wicked or monstrous, we also feel a sense of repugnance. Yes, we feel the or admiration, right? And um, and I think that really this is this is precisely why these texts were were regarded as um, instructive because in, true instruction isn't just spitting out answers on an on an exam. It's is this going to inform your life when you're in similarly challenging situations? That's really what it comes down to. Then you have been educated. Then you really have learned. Yes. And then that's so, something that's going to get challenged so and entirely overturned when we get to the end of the uh, 19th century. And then especially after World War II and the Holocaust, where people talk about how highly 
cultured, educated people can do monstrous, monstrous things and that there's actually no connection between aesthetic value and ethical value when it comes to these texts, which I think is fundamentally wrong-headed here because you can dismiss then uh, 2,200 years worth of great literature on that yeah. date. And it is. But this is, precise, this is precisely what the Nazis did, I agree, and that was their intent to do it. I mean, I, I believe that Hitler actually regarded the uh, the idea of conscience is something that had been taught by the Jews and which something that he wanted to get rid of. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's really interesting that not only does he uh, isolate it with uh, with to the Jews um, and want to get rid of it because he, he hates the Jews, but he he presents a certain educational model with which I think has been picked up in areas uh, and by people who would normally regard Hitler as an anathema. Um, they too regard education as relatively value free. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, but we'll, we'll come to talk about that as well. Let's talk about the heroism of Odysseus because um, this is one of the features of the epic as well. It's not only the epic where we have heroes, but uh, okay. certainly uh, we associate with the epic a certain type of hero. Before um, Odysseus is... Get too far into that, can I just backtrack? There's yeah, another yeah. point here that I think we don't want to leave behind here when we're talking about these things. You mentioned right at the beginning there the invocation of the muses and how um, this embodies a, a notion that A, you are not the creative source of the work of art. We've talked about this a little bit before in previous episodes here. Um, that rather this uh, the source of genius, for lack of a better word, and I'm using genius in the rather more Roman sense of it uh, here. This genius is something Tutel that, tutelary spirit, right? Yes, exactly, and it's connected. Of course, genius is, is simply the Latin word for the uh, the daemon, uh, which the Greeks are so obsessed with. And we'll come back. We'll talk about that too. Yeah, Socrates had one. Yes, um, but the notion here is that. When they're talking about poetry, Horace talks about this, Quintilian talks about this, Aristotle talks about this. What is the content appropriate to poetry? Because nowadays we say almost as religious dogma that poetry should be able to talk about everything and anything. It's a romantic notion, but it's, it's not just the romantics who say this nowadays. Whereas up until the romantics, the notion was that there was certain content which was appropriate to poetry and other stuff which was not. And of course, the Enlightenment overplayed that hand, which is largely what the, the romantics are, are lashing back against. And yeah. they won the day and then they've held the ground. So there was no oscillation since then. What constitutes appropriate content for poetry? And the Greek response and the Roman response, indeed, everybody's response in the West was that the subject matter had to entail something of the transcendent, the otherworldly, the sacred, the spiritual, the divine. There was an elevation of tone and spirit that uh, poetry was supposed to embody. And if you had something a little more earthy that you wanted to talk about, uh, prose was perhaps a, a better choice for you. And again, with the rise of the novel, we see that, uh, that uh, taken to an extreme. The notion here is that when you invoke the muses, you are invoking a divine source to elevate your poetry to content which is appropriate to that poetic form. This is the notion. And it can't come from the man, no matter how clever he is. Like Homer is this great artist, but he's an artist in terms of the craft and he communicates the divine core of what is said in poetic form, but is not himself the source thereof. And yeah. this is the notion that can't be underscored, I think, quite enough to the modern reader. Uh, his job is to as articulately and with as much craft and knowledge as possible, like, like any good craftsman, his job is to articulate the, the divine flow from the muse. In this case, probably Calliope is the one we're talking about. Calliope, yeah. yeah. Exactly, who's appropriate to epic poetry. <clears throat> and it's also important to note that 
uh, of poetry, the highest form of poetry, as we've said before, is epic poetry. So nowhere is this channeling of the divine more powerful and important than in these poems. So you see immediately they're obsessed with invoking the muse at the beginning of epic poetry specifically. And later on, as we get further into other works, uh, Milton is, is famous for this, he will invoke not obviously the muses, but the Holy Spirit. But I just wanted to get that, uh, underscore that point before we moved on to the two topics of heroism. And uh, it's also notable that um, there are certain things that we would regard as lewd and crude and vulgar, and those are dealt with in, in the genre of comedy, but they're not dealt with in, in other genres. So there's, a, there's a, a, a type of writing where certain things are suitable, and there's a certain type of thing that's not dealt with in those types of writing as well. So in, for instance, in the tragedy, the terrible deed of the, not the emasculation, but the, the blinding mm -hmm. of Oedipus, it takes place off stage because yeah. it was regarded as something that was vulgar and which nobody ought to look upon. There's something, there's a, a, so it's not the pornography of violence, which we see so commonly in our, um, in our literary and uh, mm -hmm. dramatic productions of our day. So I think that's interesting as well. Um, I, like, I like that notion that the pornography of violence, because we see a celebration in modern uh, art nowadays, not so much in poetry because no one's really writing poetry anymore, uh, but in other art forms where the subject matter has not just accidentally or incidentally moved into the realm of the vulgar, but it actually celebrates their sheer vulgarity of it. And the more vulgar you can make your work of art, the better. It's, it, it's tied in with, with the rise and dominance of kitsch culture, I think, yeah. in art where and anything else is seen as ludicrous and we have seen this before we saw this in the enlightenment when they all of a sudden they discovered they could no longer adopt the appropriate tone to epic this is and not I, and I, I note for my students that the marquis de sade is an enlightenment figure <laughs> <laughs> yes it yeah. really is you read even even really good writers like jonathan swift uh, in Gulliver's Travels, all of a sudden we'll just indulge into this welter of scatological humor and what have you, yeah. which, you know, in, in another sense, um, the Enlightenment period was the most proper uh, age of them all in English uh, cultural history. Yeah. Uh, it was a great age of propriety. And so to find scatological humor and all these other things rising up amidst all this propriety and etiquette uh, shocks a lot of readers. And it does beg the overwhelming question, why, why, why? So... Let me talk about, let's talk about the heroism of uh, Odysseus because he really is a different type of man than Achilles. Mm -hmm. On the sense, they're not great leaders or um, great figures. They're both clearly that. And Achilles is obviously, as the Iliad established, the greatest of the Greeks. So he is the most um, admirable, mm -hmm. even more so than Odysseus. Odysseus is just one man among many when it comes to the theater of conflict. That's right. Um, and but Achilles is the greatest. There's there's no doubt about that. That's interesting, and it's by the same author Homer, or whether you want to say that it's it's one author or a tradition of authors, it doesn't matter. They're saying the same thing. Achilles is the model of Greek heroism. So Odysseus is is not like that, and nonetheless, he's being presented in this work as a, a sort of a role model for us to follow. And so my question in this is, is Homer actually revising what heroism is? Is he presenting it as two different uh, models of heroism, one of which is appropriate for the theater of war, one of which is more appropriate for the domestic and civil context? 
Um, I'm not entirely sure, but they are quite different. It's not just that he's a radically different kind of a hero. Uh, like Achilles, it seems to be the judgment of the text, whether that be Homer or something else, that both models of heroism ultimately are failures. Uh, Odysseus is not a happy man by the end of this text. Uh, it's not like all of a sudden his glory has brought him peace and joy and all these sorts of things. It hasn't really. He just wants to be forgotten. Also, you're right. He's coming back to a domestic space, which maybe requires a, a different kind of a hero. But the heroism he deploys here is exactly the kind of behavior that Achilles, the greatest of all heroes, condemns in the Iliad. Yes. Uh, he is a duplicitous trickster figure who can adopt many different guises or masks, if you yeah. will, in order to win his own advantage uh, and, and restore order, uh, ironically. Here's a, here's a neat way of holding on to the difference between Achilles and Odysseus. Achilles, so and it's two Greek words, there's kleos, which means fame, and nostos, which is the homeward return from which we mm. get nostalgia in English. Algae is the for pain. So nostalgia is literally a, a home ache, which right. is in uh, German, heimweh, but it's not in English. English, we call it homesickness. Odysseus doesn't suffer from homesickness. He suffers from not being home. So there's a pain with not being home. He aches and longs for being home. And that really is what uh, marks Odysseus. This man wants to be back home. Yeah. Whereas, and, and his heroism is implicated in being able to return home. If he cannot return home, he will not be the famous hero that he is meant to be. In fact, right. fated to be. Whereas if uh, Achilles returns home, he is not a hero. Yes. He needs not, he must not return home. He must die on on the battlefield. So he if goes, he returns home, he is not the man he's supposed to be. Whereas if Odysseus doesn't return home, he's not the man he's meant to be. So there's a, there's a sharp distinction here. Part of me wonders whether or not Homer or whoever uh, was not so much making assertions about heroism uh, in, in sort of prescriptive senses, but rather exploring uh, in a much more intellectual sense the types of heroism that are appropriate to various spheres, the virtues and the vices of those different species of heroism. Is the Odyssey an exploratory text, sort of in the intellectual spirit of Augustine, or is it a more prescriptive thing, say, you know, the, that you might read from a Seneca or somebody like this? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm leaning towards the former model. Um, I'm, I could be convinced to revise that opinion, but that, that's where I am right now. So the two men are differed, differing, as we just suggested, but so, is there, so are their challenges. Yes. So Achilles gets to fight other men face up. It doesn't matter how many men. He's the greatest of all fighting men. There's no, he has no peer. That's right. But Odysseus, uh, who's a great warrior himself, although not as great as Achilles, his enemies or his opponents in the Odyssey are different than Achilles. He doesn't only fight men. He has to confront witches and supernatural figures like Polyphemus, the um, character. Cyclops. The Cyclops, yes. Yeah, Cyclops. He's one of the Cyclops. And there are cannibals. He and has to fight Scylla. Scylla and Charybdis, uh, all sorts of supernatural figures. And, and he needs to, he cannot fight them 
straight up. That's an impossibility. He will lose. In fact, he tries a few times and he, he loses countless men in the process. These are not fights that you can win by direct conflict. You have to find another way to solve these problems. And that is through using his mind. And so Odysseus is the representation of a heroism that is engaged with intellectual prowess and that's how you fight the greatest of enemies and these are the supernatural enemies yeah it's i think it's also important to note that he also faces uh, antagonists some of them more benevolent some of them less benevolent in the form of women yes uh, and yet, so he has to deal with women and so violence as typically conceived is not uh, an option here he has to no different ways of doing battle if you like and i think this is another thing that connects him very much with being a domestic uh, hero rather than the hero on the battlefield. So we're seeing here that there, there's a sort of a, a nexus of um, feminine antagonists, monstrous antagonists, uh, domestic antagonists, domestic battlefields. Uh, there are a lot of things here that are not just different than what we encounter in the Iliad as the Iliad explores heroism, but are antithetical to those uh, those contexts that we encounter uh, in the Iliad. And I think it's so pervasive and it's so systematic that it, it is part of the deliberate artistry of the Odyssey, that it takes as talking points and then adopts the opposite view uh, on heroism and the, the realms of heroism that we encounter in the Iliad, which is, as you say, the greater text. So he is the Odyssey in some sense, a reflective text of building off of and speaking back into the Iliad. Uh, I do think so in many ways. And this is one of them, the monstrous, the feminine, the domestic. And yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I always teach to my undergrads. I mean, when we taught the same institution, you used to teach the Iliad and I teach the Odyssey. That's right. I always felt conflicted about doing it. And you probably did the same um, in part because they are really the two together are meant to be read together or performed together or understood together. And, and, and they do really fit together and they present a, Com complexity together that is lacking yeah. uh, if you only take one of the texts. What they certainly do, though, however, irrespective of whether you do the Iliad or the Odyssey, is they promote a sense of mastery by example and uh, through adventure in a way that really interests young men. Yes. And not just, not only young men, but, but young men in a way that um, other literary forms simply don't interest. Um, yeah, what's your, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Bill? They speak to universal concerns. So it's, it's not, these are not, I, I know certain professors would uh, insist that these are both very masculine texts, that they're meant for a masculine audience, uh, that they derive from masculine sensibilities. And yeah, you can, you can certainly make those sorts of assertions. But because they address systematically, aggressively, and quite literally at the epic level, universal human concerns, they are not texts simply meant for the entertainment and education of men uh, in whatever form. Having said that, uh, I present, uh, usually I, I go for the Iliad. One of the reasons I go for the Iliad is that it is such a ferociously adventurous and, and at times savage and violent text. It's the kind of text that young men who have been raised on a steady diet of modern literature do not expect to encounter, and they are shocked. They take several classes just to get over their shock that this is what poetry can be, and indeed, more typically has been up until quite recently. And the greatest poetry at that. 
Yes, and moreover, it's not just poetry which uh, in, involves adventure, uh, uh, the expedition, the quest, the monsters, uh, all these sorts of things, the violence, the battling. I mean, it's, it's, the Iliad is an enormously gory text, uh, mm -hmm. willfully gory in places. It is also a text which is incredibly eloquent, complex, and nuanced. I mean, this is high, high, high art that requires an enormously sophisticated reader to really appreciate what's going on on the page in, in front of him or her. And so it's the coming together of this adventurous robustness and this incredible sophistication, which they find so incredibly shocking when they first encounter the Iliad. And luckily, I had professors back during my undergraduate who said, you know, basically, uh, we, we sort of uh, associated gendering with certain approaches to poetry, which are not yeah. always helpful. And they're yeah. really unhelpful around the Aeneid, the Odyssey, the Iliad, and a host of other texts, which, as I said, require an enormously civilized, cultivated reader. But that's not necessarily uh, a feminine trait or a masculine trait for that matter. So, but really interesting is that Odysseus is has virtues that one might associate with women it's interesting that is that the goddess athena says that you are like me like most yeah. like me and she we're two of a kind basically mm -hmm. he, he's marked by deceit this the word is uh, uh dolos and and women are marked by this feature when they do this so when, when women are deceitful it's part of their uh their fame their kleos so his wife penelope uh, weaves this tapestry in order to deceive the suitors well that's part of her fame we're meant There's to applaud that deception we're oh absolutely and this is something that's entirely appropriate it's not normally seen as appropriate for a man to do this no. but it is precisely what odysseus does and he's applauded for it and moreover it's presented as prescriptive in certain contexts to some degree odysseus models that and in fact those instances where he acts a bit like achilles such as in the, the infamous instance when he blinds Polyphemus and then reveals who he is. You know, you ask for my name, my name is Odysseus, uh, son of Laertes, sacker of cities, etc. You, you go, you remember that name. And then, of course, then he cries out to Poseidon, his father, and, and that is the moment of Odysseus's great downfall is when he acts like a man. Well, yeah, he, he got the fame he desired but I'm, I'm quoting a later Viking hero. Everybody earns fame in their own way, and sometimes that fame is in the form of infamy. Uh, yeah. Or in this case here, the, it's not so much infamy as the undoing of the man. If he had he kept his identity to himself, uh, he would have been spared much suffering and sorrow and hardship. The time and again we see in the Odyssey, one of the heroic traits which most identifies uh, Odysseus is the fact that he does keep his mouth shut. He doesn't say what he wants to say. He does not reveal who he is. He moves incognito in numerous places, whether it's Ithaca. He is very, very prudent. The man's self-restraint is one of his most remarkable features. And this is something that is difficult for, again, for some modern readers to get their brain around, that heroism would involve a restraint of a reigning in yeah. Uh, yeah. your identity, your glory, your, your name, your virtues. For, with Achilles, when he finally goes into actions, it's all on display. Oh, yeah. Whereas Odysseus, it is ruthlessly, carefully, systematically covered up. That's a, exactly what Athena counsels him. You will have to, and he comes, he comes, he returns in the guise of a beggar, even, yes. and, and he's told that he must do this in order to 
recognize who his, his friends and his foes are. And, and really in order to survive because if he ar arrives on the island and they... So shall we leave it off there with uh, that account of heroism and maybe we'll pick it up uh, next episode and we can talk about uh, the portrait of Telemachus, this yeah. uh, immature young man, and we can talk about uh, where we go from there. Yeah, because that'll tie in nicely to notions of paideia and growth and education and maturation and whatnot. Okay, thank Good. you everybody for listening. 